come on a journey with a cinephile. Okay, I want to welcome everybody to episode 8 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., and this is my winter-slash-year-end five, where I have featured reviews of I Trap the Devil from this year, as well as Await Further Instructions from last year, both of those having a little bit of, uh, you know, the Christmas holiday is kind of the backdrop of it. And then I also have mini reviews for the original Evil Dead, Hellboy from this year, also from this year, The Fanatic, Boar, which technically came up, was made in 2017, but got its release in America in 2019, as well as two other films from this year in Sweetheart and The Furies. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, since I have so many of those little re mini reviews, I'm going to kick you over to the first musical break before I get into those. Enjoy.
review for this week i actually got to catch the original evil dead at the gateway film center as they were showing the 4k restoration this came out in 1981 it is written and directed by sam raimi it stars bruce campbell ellen sandvice and richard d manicore this is a horror movie from the united states it is currently sitting on a 7.5 on imdb and a 3.8 on letterboxd The synopsis is, five friends travel to a cabin in the woods where they unknowingly release flesh-possessing demons. I actually have an interesting past with this one. I first saw Army of Darkness when my father got it for me for something like my seventh or eighth birthday, something just random like that, as he would always, he was a VHS collector, so he would buy movies that he wanted to see and give it to my sister and I as gifts every now and then, which kind of explains some of my, you know, collecting that I do now. And then I remember having my mother rent Evil Dead 2 before actually seeing this original one. I'm not sure if my video store had it and it just wasn't in, so they grabbed this one instead. But I know we end up having to buy the original here on VHS, which happened after the fact, which is how I end up seeing this for the first time. So it's an interesting way for me to watch this as I saw the more comedic ones before actually getting to this one where... This one is just straight horror. And I have seen this one quite a few times now with this time, as I said, the 4K uh, at the theater. Even though I have seen this one so many times and I know what's going to happen, it still creeps me out. It is just insane what Raimi could do with a budget that he had here and still work with it to make it as terrifying as it is. They went far with what they had to bring us to life for sure and... I definitely, you know, have to give them props there. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that possession films terrify me more. I might not necessarily be able to stop a killer, but I at least have a fighting chance. When it comes to films with demons like this, I don't know what I would do, and I'm not necessarily sure how to, you know, unpossess myself. So that terrifies me as the more, I guess, unrealistic things are a little bit scarier. I do have to bring up a bit of an issue here that I have. My problem is that there doesn't really seem to be any rhyme or reason to see who becomes possessed. Now, Cheryl gets attacked out in the woods, and she is played by um, Sandweiss. I understand why she ends up getting possessed after that encounter. The same thing goes for Linda, who is portrayed by Betsy Baker, as well as Shelly, who is Teresa Tilly. Now, when they both become possessed, it makes a whole lot of sense here. But Ashley Williams, who is, of course, the amazing Bruce Campbell, is attacked in similar ways, and he seems to be able to resist for whatever reason. I just personally 
wanted that to be explained, but like I said, it doesn't ruin the movie. It's just something that struck me after all these times of viewing it, and I believe the last few times that I've watched it, that is something that has popped up. Now, I do like that they introduced the Book of the Dead here. They don't use the name Necronomicon in this one, but that's what it ends up becoming. I love the concept of this book that contains ways to bring these demons to life. It is spooky that they're just living around us, not bothering us, and in this one, they seem to be upset when their slumber is disturbed. I also like that after what the professor did, they're subtly roaming the woods and messing around with these people as they're on their way. I don't know if every night the incantation needs to be read for them to attack or what. That's something that's not fully explained either, but my interpretation is that the professor summoned them. They still are allowed to roam the woods, but in order for them to possess these new group of people, they need to you know, speak these words and, you know, work that spell out for it to happen again. I do have to say that the pacing is really good. It doesn't take long for creep things to start happening, like I'm saying, because even on their drive up in the first five minutes, they have the issue with their car. And I also think it's interesting that the ways that we get to really get to know these characters is through seeing the fear of what is going on. It has a runtime of about 85 minutes, so it doesn't outstay its welcome, and the horrific elements are evenly paced throughout. I never get bored, which is always a good thing, and I like how this all ends. Now, the acting, I do have to say, is quite amateur, but I have to commend them, and I almost feel like that gives it a little bit of a charm. As I've said, Campbell here is very early in his career, so he isn't the, you know, Ash that we know and love yet, but you get glimpses of his ability as an actor, and I like him as our lead. It's funny, though, because this one's not, like I said, he's not the macho version. He's definitely more of a normal guy, I would say. Sandwise playing as his sister here I thought was fine. She's kind of hysterical even from the get-go. And I almost feel like there's a almost subplot, I would say, of her being more in tune with the supernatural without realizing it. Because it does affect her where she, you know, draws the picture of the Necronomicon before they even go to see it. And she's also easy to isolate because of her attitude. The other guy with them is Scott, who is D-Manicor. I think he's a jerk, and I think he plays that really well. He got a reaction out of me, which is something I have to give credit for as an actor. Uh, Baker and Tilly are both fine as the other two ladies that are there. I did find Baker to be pretty attractive, but she's also terrifying when she's possessed. And I think everybody else does a really good job and I have to also give credit to the voices they use for him because that makes it even more, you know, scary seeing after they've turned. So that is uh, perk for me as well. To the effects, for what the effects they did here for the budget they have, I thought they were done really well. They're done practically, of course. Some of them were clever and still gross me out to this day. The blood we get looks good. And I like how the possessed people have black blood. I think this was something to do with trying to get this for the rating system i think it actually works interesting to differentiate and there's a bit of an issue though with the blood and goron characters isn't always consistent but it is what it is there's a lot to keep in line there and i know we get some points where a character will show us that they're wiping their face off so there's a little bit of that but i've been a script supervisor and on a featured film before and it can be quite difficult if i'm honest so I'm not going to harp on that either. And it is also shot very well in my opinion. I do have a gripe with the 4K version though. They added a new soundtrack to it. And I heard about this on a podcast before I had seen it. And now having gotten the chance to, I agree with them. I don't like it. And I don't think we need it. As it is way creepier when we get just the um, sounds of the 
forests or things to that nature. So I don't think the music that I put in there is necessarily needed. So I'm definitely glad that I have my DVD still where I have the original idea and the original way that it was put out. Now with that said, this film was a lot of nostalgia for me even though it's not the first that I saw in the series. I can recognize this is a great low budget effort with its flaws, but I'm willing to overlook them because of the significance here. Many of them don't really affect anything and a lot of it's nitpicking. The demons are creepy and even knowing how things play out due to multiple times, they still scare me. I like the Book of the Dead that is used here. I think there's some inconsistency to kind of the story and the powers of the demons. The effects, though, look real good, even you know with the low budget, and the pacing is effective to a solid ending. I don't like the soundtrack that's added to the 4K and prefer the original way that we got it. Uh, this is definitely a classic, and I believe this is a great movie overall, and I am still keeping my rating here as a 10 out of 10. Alright, and for my second mini-review for this week is going to be of Hellboy from this year, 2019. It's directed by Neil Marshall. It is written by Andrew Cosby, who did the screenplay, and it's based off of the Dark Horse comic book Hellboy that was created by Mike Mignola. It stars David Harbour, Mila Djokovic, and Ian McShane. This is an action, adventure, fantasy, horror, sci-fi film, and the country of origins are the United States, United Kingdom, Bulgaria, and Canada. And the synopsis is based on the graphic novels. Hellboy is caught between the worlds of the supernatural and human, battling an ancient sorceress bent on revenge. Now I'll admit, I was intrigued to check this out when I first heard about it, as I really enjoyed the Guillermo del Toro version, and thought that one was fun. When I heard this one was going to be a hard R, I figured they would just ramp up the horror movie aspects, which is something I'm always down for. And I was also intrigued when I saw that Harbour would be playing Hellboy, as I'm a fan of him on Stranger Things and feel that he brings you know, some of that sarcasm that I'm used to from this character. But I will admit, I've never read any of the graphic novels, as I've only seen the other two movies. Now, I will admit, I had heard mixed things before the first time that I saw it. This is actually my second viewing, so I did catch it in theaters, and then I watched it, I picked it up on DVD, and... I had seen it and saw the mixed reviews at first, what I was saying. Some liked it, some were complaining, usually how it goes. This film was exactly what I thought it was going to be, if I'm going to be honest. It just feels like a R-rated, big-budget horror comic book movie. Now, there were some things that I really liked and thought they did well with this. The first thing for me is that I like they incorporated the myth of King Arthur into this. This is something you get in the very beginning as we learn the history of what happens to this sorceress from the synopsis i've like i said never read any of the comics so i don't know if that's something that was in there or she's for the film i think it's interesting though because it gives it a perspective to certain things that are going on going from that we really get the concept of self-fulfilling prophecies here no matter what the people in this film say or try to do they are always seeming to be pushing hellboy to fulfill either the good or bad prophecy that is set up for his character. I always wonder when you see things like this if he would still do or wouldn't do what they're giving him credit for and if he would just do the right thing without them pushing. It's just an interesting concept for me and that's something that I enjoy. Something else for this film that I you know, kind of enjoyed is that Nimue, who is uh, Djokovic, she is the blood queen who is a sorceress. Now she wants to destroy humanity. 
Part of this is for revenge for what happened to her, which is completely understandable. She is also angered as she is waiting for the other parts of her body to be returned because when she was killed by King Arthur, she was mutilated to where her parts were scattered around the United Kingdom, and they need to be brought back to her in order to become whole again and get all of her power. While she's waiting, she's watching television and has seen what humanity has become. I'm partially guilty here is that I love me some bad reality television every now and then. It really boils down to humans are trash and we need to be wiped out. So as horrible as that sounds, I can't really argue with her logic here. And I will admit, I'm very nihilistic in my views on things. So I do apologize if I come off of being just really negative. I just see and hear things around me all the time and that's just, I don't feel that humanity, you know, is a great thing for this planet. Not something I'm going to try to push onto you, but just my thoughts and how this film connects with me. I did like that this version did somewhat get away from that sappy love story that was in the Del Toro version. I get that we all want to find our one person, which is great. Now, Nimue has a plan for Hellboy, which is fine, but I do have to admit, and it is for a similar reason, but hers isn't necessarily for love, it is more for the destruction of our world. We also do get the origin story briefly here about Hellboy. So it does have, you know, the Nazis. Um, I love it they actually incorporate Grigori Rasputin, who in this one is Marcos Ronwaith. And we also get my favorite character from the Del Toro film, Von Krump, who is in this one, Joel Harlow. I will admit, though, after a second viewing of this, I know they incorporate this and that I've went on these things that I really liked. I feel this film is missing heart though, and it really took the second viewing to you know, let all the dust settle from everything and then rewatch it. Now, the pacing I do feel like is fine. The film is two hours. It doesn't necessarily feel like it. We keep getting a bunch of action and things happening, which I'm a fan of. The only issue I really had is that there are three flashbacks to fill in backstory. I think it is good to show us things and not necessarily tell us, but it did get to be a bit, bit much here. This is being a reimagining of the graphic novels. I understand why it was done to get us up to speed with the lore if you didn't watch the other two films. I thought the ending was good, though. It really reveals the character and nature of Hellboy, and it does set itself up for a sequel if they want to, as there is a mid- and post-credit scene. Uh, something I just want to kind of throw in here is we get the mythological creature from like the Slavic and Russian like lore of Baba Yaga. I really would like to see more of that because I find that to be just an interesting character. I'm going to shift over to the acting, which I thought Harbor was solid as Hellboy. In the previous version and its sequel, I liked Ron Perlman as well. I think they both do a good job, you know, taking on this role. And I was, as I said earlier, wasn't worried about it. And he definitely, you know, Harbor definitely filled in the shoes just fine. Even though he does play this one a little bit whinier than Perlman, but both versions of the character are very similar there. Uh, I thought Djokovic was solid as the villain. She seems menacing and is an interesting role for her to take on. It's not as physically demanding as like her Resident Evil films or like Ultraviolet or anything like that, but I think she still, you know, is menacing. I thought that Sasha Lane, who plays Alice Monahan, thought she was good. Uh, Daniel Day Kim plays Major Ben Diamo, and I thought they both were solid. The rest of the cast rounded out this film for what they needed as well. And a special shout out to Stephen Graham, who voices a pig character that is actually a changeling of Grugak. I thought he was solid as well. Now, something that is really kind of the elephant in the room when you're talking about this film, and I definitely thought about this when I was sitting in the theater, the effects here are mostly CGI. 
for those who know me, I love practical effects. We do get some of that. Um, I thought the look of Hellboy was good, and even the Hell King version that we get just a little bit of, thought that was, uh, you know, looked fine, and I know there's a lot of CGI there. Now, there's a lot of CGI just in general. Some of it's really good. I, you know, was pretty impressed at times. I will also say there's some really bad aspects to it as well. There's quite a bit of that that comes from blood, which doesn't always look good, and it's hard to do. Yeah, and I will just say, there's just so much CGI in this film. I came to expect it for sure, and the film is shot well, though. Last thing to cover before I round this, wrap this up really quick would be the soundtrack. We It is used actually some pretty interesting ways. We get Rocky Like a Hurricane um, in Spanish early on, as we also get some rock music during the fights, which fits. I think it was used pretty well, and I actually thought that it helped out the film to match the feeling of the scenes. Now, with that said, I had fun with this film. Do I think it's great? Not by any stretch. It actually has some deeper feelings in it that I wasn't expecting, and I like that. The story has some interesting concepts to it. thought the acting was solid. The pacing of it really moves along at a good clip with a solid ending. I don't think we needed as many flashbacks as we got. There are a lot of effects, some good and some that are just bad. The soundtrack was solid. I don't think that everyone will like this movie, and from what I've seen, that's definitely the case. If you like comic book films, I think you might enjoy this, especially if you're a you know horror fan. I liked that they were able to incorporate you know those elements into a movie like this. I do think at a second viewing, as I've said earlier, it is just lacking some heart for me, and I've come down on this as I still feel like this is above average film and is just fun for the right audiences. So my rating is going to be a seven out of ten. Okay, and the next film that I watched for this week is The Fanatic from this year, 2019. It is, it is directed by Fred Durst, and it's from a story by Fred Durst, and he also co-wrote this screenplay with Dave Beckerman. It stars John Travolta, Devin Sawa, and Anna Gola. This is technically a crime thriller film from the United States. It is sitting at a 4.9 on IMDb and a 1.6 on Letterboxd, and the synopsis is a rabid film fan stalks his favorite action hero and destroys the star's life. Now this is another film that I had intended to see at the Gateway Film Center, but my schedule just didn't mesh up with it for me to actually do that. And I had been hearing mixed things about it, so I was kind of considering if I was even going to check this out. But the consensus was that it was wild, so that definitely altered my decision. Now as the synopsis stated, we have Moose, who is Travolta, as he is trying to get an autograph from Hunter Dunbar, who is Sawa, being that Moose is mentally handicapped, he doesn't necessarily understand the normal social norms that we kind of understand, you know, not to bother somebody. Because there's definitely a few different times where he does this in his pursuit of this autograph and ends up pushing everything to limits that people shouldn't do that. And that's where I'm going to go ahead and transition to say that I have to admit, this is actually a solid story that we're working off of here. I thought I heard somewhere that this is loosely based on something that Durst actually experienced himself. Clearly not to the level that this goes, but I believe he did have an obsessed fan that he had to deal with, which I've heard many stories from actors and actresses just over the years have dealing with things very similar to this. And I'm actually torn on my assessment here. On one side we have Moose, obsessed fan, absolutely. But I also have to give some leeway that he is mentally handicapped. He doesn't understand some of the things that he's doing and that he's going too far. And it doesn't help that he's legit bullied by Todd, who is portrayed by um, Jacob Grodnick. 
Now, they're both performers in Hollywood that you will see, like, the Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, things like that, where Moose dresses up as, uh, like, a Bobby police officer from London, where Todd is actually a magician that does things, but he also works with a pickpocket in order to make way more money, bullies Moose, and you kind of feel bad because he's getting pushed to his limit. And then on top of that, Hunter is extremely rude to Moose as well. Now, some of this is justified from Hunter. What Moose is doing is just gets, becomes quite scary, just showing up to his house like he does. And the catalyst event that really starts it is Moose is next in line to get an autograph, and Hunter gets up because a woman is outside wanting to talk to him, which turns out to be, I believe it's his ex-wife, as Hunter was supposed to watch their child. And Moose interrupts this because he wants to get an autograph. I almost feel like if Hunter would have just signed some things... Moose might have just stopped, but on the converse, we see that even after talks between the two, Moose just seems to get progressively worse and worse with the things that he does. And with that said, I completely get where Hunter is coming from as well. As a celebrity, even more so like a guy like him, as he doesn't seem like a major movie star, he's more of a low-budget action actor who makes him a bit more accessible, as he could be going to things like conventions and things like that where you can actually get up to meet him where you don't necessarily see that from actors that are outside of the horror or even like the lower budget genres in general and i have to admit it would be very scary if you just look out and there is a crazed fan who's outside and i also think there's an issue that hunter and his wife are no longer together so his life is kind of spiraling out of control with just some of the things that are happening around him and i do believe he's projecting a little bit out onto moose to get some of his rage out and there's a line from the ex-wife that makes me think that there's been other fans similar to moose who have done this and that it might happen pretty regularly and probably also contributed in part to their split for how good and dark some of these ideas are, this film is a bit boring, unfortunately. With a runtime of 88 minutes, it does fly by. The problem is that it really establishes our two main characters, as well as Leah, who is Golja. And she's kind to Moose and tries helping him, but she also contributes to things getting progressively worse, as she's doing some things to be a good friend. But with somebody like Moose, I don't know if you can necessarily do these things because it leads him down the path that ends up getting him into the events that kind of change everybody's lives. But I will admit, this film does meander until the time that Moose really loses it and loses any chance of like a normal like relationship with Hunter. And from that point, it does pretty well at building tension, but I almost think a little bit of that is too little too late. The ending was something I wasn't necessarily expecting, and I did end up liking it, to be honest. Now, I feel like for the acting here, there's a joke out there that says, you don't go full retard. Now, I don't necessarily like that because I don't like using that term, but it has been something that a joke has been made, I know, especially for films like I Am Sam. I actually think that Travolta did a really good job here at applying himself to someone who is mentally handicapped. I definitely believe him in his role. I felt horrible for him and for how bad he's beaten down. Since I can't fault either star and Moose is doing a lot of illegal things, I do think that it works well in making me question my morals. With that said, Sawa does come off as an asshole. I think that it helps that they establish his life is kind of in a rut and he's making the best of it. It is hard to blame him for protecting his son and his own life from Moose, but I think his aggression causes a lot of these issues. I also found Golja to be quite attractive and an interesting character. I've touched on this a bit already. She doesn't realize that she's making the problems worse with certain things that she recommends to him. 
because she really just wants to make sure that he's happy, and she knows that he has a lot of problems in his life. Grodnik and his pickpocket friend, who is portrayed by James Paxton, going under the name of Slim is the character, are good to help push Moosh to the edge as well. They're both jerks with fits for their role. There are quite a few attractive women here, which help to round out this and give the feel that they're actually in Hollywood. There's not a lot in the way of effects until the climax. Even with it there, there's still not even that many during that whole sequence. I wasn't expecting, like I said, where it went, but once it had, I was on board. Some of the things that happened to a character legit made me cringe and just makes it interesting to the story overall. For this being Durst's first film, I do feel like it's shot pretty well in my opinion. The last thing to cover is the soundtrack, which didn't really stand out to me. It did fit for what I was needing and it never took me out of it. I really only wanted to bring this up though because I found it funny is that Hunter in the, is in the car with his son and puts on a Limp Biscuit CD. Speaking that Durst is the co-writer and director and with Sawa's age, it would fit that he would listen to them growing up in you know that formidable teen age range there. So I just thought it was a fun tie-in. Now with that said, this film does some really good things. I like that they have it grounded in reality and the performance of Travolta really drives it. Speaking of driving, it is an interesting character study of somebody with his mental capacity being driven to the things that he does through bullies at work, as well as his hero not living up to what he thought. This is also an aspect that Leah narrates to us over their meeting, um, where she states that meeting our heroes can be a disappointment because they don't necessarily live up to what we believe. I do think that there's some slight pacing issues. As it does meander for a bit, the effects look really good when we get them, and although the soundtrack didn't stand out, it did fit for what we needed. Overall, I would say this is slightly above average if I'm going to be honest, but it had potential to be really good, so I think my rating I'm going to come in here is a 6.5 out of 10. Alright, that'll take me next to the film Boar from 2017. But it didn't get released over here in the United States until 2019. This is directed by Chris Sun, who also wrote the screenplay. And the story editor was Kirstie Dallas. It stars Nathan Jones, Bill Mosley, and John Jarrett. This is an adventure horror thriller film from Australia. It is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. The synopsis in the harsh, yet beautiful Australian outback lives a beast, an animal of staggering size, with a ruthless, driving need for blood and destruction. It cares for none, defends its territory with brutal force, and kills with a raw, animalistic savagery unlike any have seen before. Now this was one that I heard about earlier this year as people were checking it out. I was intrigued because I dig the concept of creature features where we have more of a naturalistic type animal that is doing the killings. So I mean, nature and amok are probably, like I say, my favorite creature features. And this animal here just happened to get like it does and start killing people. There's nothing with like global warming or you know toxic waste or anything like that to make it you know grow to this size. It's just something that has started to, or just something that has naturally happened, and it's decided that the only prey out there that contends with it at the top of the food chain is humans. So as I've kind of already led into, these aren't films, like creature features aren't necessarily ones that I go to first, but if I end up liking one, I end up usually really enjoying it. So when I find a good one, I will watch it especially if it's fun. And that's some of what we get here. Wild pigs are something that are quite scary to be honest, even though I've never lived in an area where they have them. 
Now, I did grow up in the country where I've had friends raise pigs, and I know that they can be quite mean. So it's terrifying to have one grow to the size that we get in this movie for sure. And as I was kind of saying earlier, in reality, is it realistic to have a boar grow to the size that we have in this movie? Of course not. It's very unlikely. It'll probably die off of some natural causes or something will kill it before it can. There isn't much of a wild explanation, so I can get down with that. And it's really just nature, and it's something that's just also absolutely terrifying. And I'm not going to lie. Seeing some of the things here is part of the reason why I'm not a fan of legit camping in the woods or in the wilderness just in general. I mean, it doesn't help that all the horror movies that I've seen either. Now, for a minute here, I'm going to shift to the acting because I think we get an interesting cast of characters. When I saw John Jarrett's name pop up in the credits, I was stoked. I first saw him as the villain in Wolf Creek, but since then I saw him in the film Next of Kin, where he plays a role more similar to the one we get here. And it was weird to also see him with a beard in this movie, but I kind of dug it. And his interactions with, with Roger Ward, who plays a character named Blue, was fun, as well as seeing him interact with his daughter in the movie, Sasha, played by Melissa Tukats. Or Cots, not really sure if that T in the front is silent or not. But there's just a charm to listening to them talking and using slang that just, since this film takes place in Australia, and I'm not gonna lie, I actually had a lot of fun listening to their, you know, banter back and forth. And to make it also kind of interesting, we have Bill Mosley, who is playing Bruce, is he's from the United States, but he married Debbie, portrayed by Simone Buchanan, and they live in Australia now. He doesn't necessarily understand all the slang that Debbie and her children use, but they do help him by explaining some things, and it's almost fun for me because I feel like I would be him in this situation as well. I feel like the cast of characters are distinct, especially especially the character Bernie who's portrayed by Nathan Jones. He's such an imposing figure and runs his own farm, and it's fun to see him go up against this giant boar because of his size and how he matches up to it physically. Now, not everything really worked here, though. Despite its runtime of only 96 minutes, I did find myself slightly bored at times. I think this is in part as they don't do the greatest job of editing by switching between these groups of people, so I kind of forgot about some of them at times. I get that they're sticking with a certain group that is closest to the danger, and it makes sense that the creature can't get to the next group as fast as the editing can do because of the expanse of the land, as it does take place in part of the outback. It just does make it tough for a movie like this, though. I do think that it is still entertaining, especially when it settles on Bruce and Debbie's family as they're trying to deal with this creature. And I do think that the ending was a bit of a cop-out, though, as I was hoping it was going to stay as mean-spirited as I thought it was going. So that did bother me a bit as well. That takes me to something else that I unfortunately have to harp on, which were the effects. To start off with, though, I like the practical effects that we get for the most part. There was really only a time or two when I could tell that it was a prosthetic in the aftermath of some of the wounds. The blood looked good, though. And the practical effects of the giant boar when they're showing just parts of it and they're showing it up close is they only do quick cuts there. And I thought that was fine. My big problem, though, of course, is the CGI. Early on, we get a group of normal pigs that were completely CGI, and I audibly sighed out loud about it. Some of the computer effects didn't necessarily bother me, but there were just more bad ones than good on that front. And outside of that, though, it was shot well. And before I move on, I guess I should say, there are some aspects of the boar, like the giant one, that are CGI that are also quite hit or miss for me. Now, with that said, this isn't a great movie, but I did have some fun with it. I really enjoyed the banter of the townspeople and just getting sucked into them, you know, with the talk 
from their country. I do like the tension of the giant monster attacking people, as there is some realism to that. If a boar could ever grow to be this size, I thought the acting was good and most of the practical effects were. There were some issues with the pacing from the editing for me, plus the CGI wasn't great. The soundtrack didn't really stand out to me, but it also didn't hurt. My last gripe would be just that I wish they would have stayed mean-spirited as I thought it was going to, because the ending was a bit cop-out for me. Overall though, I'd say it's a slightly above average film, but one I wouldn't necessarily go back to all that often, as my rating will be a 6 out of 10 here. Alright, that'll take me to Sweetheart which is from 2019. It was directed by J.D. Dillard. They also co-wrote this with Alex Heiner and Alex Thewer. This stars Kiersey Clemens, Emery Cohen, and Hannah Magnin Lawrence. This is a horror sci-fi thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Jen, who is Clemens, Washed ashore, a small tropical island, it doesn't take her long to realize that she's completely alone. She must spend her days not only surviving the elements, but also fend off the malevolent force that comes out each night. Now I believe I first heard about this one um, from Dave Z, and I added it as one of my films to check out for this year, just to make sure that I had seen as much as I could to get, you know, the most definitive top 10 list that I could have. And I know I'd also seen some people I follow on Twitter talking about that this was now available on Netflix. And it's actually funny because on the Friday of this week that I caught it, I had watched one movie already and was just looking to relax with a documentary on Netflix. And this popped up as something that was being recommended to me. So I decided to give it a viewing. Now kind of just to go a little bit more into the synopsis, Jen wakes up not really understanding where she's at. But we do see that she's on an island, and she ends up finding somebody that she knows, and they're really hurt, so she's trying to find something for them to drink because of, you know, the wound that they have with a piece of coral sticking out of their side. That person passes away, and she starts to look around the island and find some kind of strange things where there's a former campsite, and I love how they show that it's been there for a while, as there's actually the original Game Boy with the Game Boy camera that you could get as an attachment. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way to show some stuff there. But this film overall, there's definitely some solid aspects to it. I would say this feels like a blend of Castaway with a recent horror film that I enjoyed called The Monster. Now, Jen is older than the main character in that one, but we get a similar premise where they're trapped somewhere where a creature is stalking them. The idea of being stuck on an island alone is something that terrifies me, since I'm a city boy at heart and really don't have the best survival skills. I've gone camping, but mostly it's usually with the amenities, or if I am sleeping in a tent, it's usually at a campsite where there's RVs very close by and you don't really have too much privacy. And I'll admit, I struggle to build a fire when I've tried to. Jen does well at doing the little things to stay alive, but it's even worse knowing that every night there is this creature from the sea that keeps attacking her. Now, something else that you should know about me is I have a fear of open water. The ocean absolutely terrifies me, as there are things at the bottom of the ocean we have no idea about. And that is something that is explored here, as at one point she finds underneath the water a giant hole. Now, I've read the short story Dagon from H.P. Lovecraft, so I get vibes of that here. I like the film gives us a little bit of backstory that can be easily shown to us, so we don't get that over-explanation. Which is an example of it like that is the giant hole that she finds, she assumes that's where the creature resides. Now, I'll admit, there's a subplot that gets introduced here once 
two other characters arrive and I would say the like later part of the second act. Now those characters are Lucas, who is Emery Cohen, and Lucas is actually Jen's boyfriend. And the other character is Mia, who is um, Hannah Megan Lawrence. But there is just little flashes and hints about things that they did something to someone that was on the raft with them that I don't really understand why they did it and because it, it doesn't go anywhere and it doesn't really progress the story either. I guess the only thing would be is just that they're trying to point out the fact that these characters are willing to do things that might not necessarily be socially acceptable in order to survive. Now, I don't mean to take a dig at another film because I don't necessarily like to break films down you know, in a negative way if I don't have to. But I just find this interesting. This movie came from Blumhouse. It's ironic that this has dropped on Netflix and does more for feminism than a film that was released to theaters. I bring that up because Lucas talks down to Jen and brings up things that he feels that she's taking advantage of. This is probably something he's never done when they, you know, weren't under this stressful situation. But I definitely think this is somewhat misogynistic to do. But she's a badass woman and just gets even tougher in her pursuit of survival here. Now that'll take me to how this is paced, and to be honest, I thought it was fine. It has a low runtime of 82 minutes, which I think is, you know, good because it gets right into all of this. If anything, I feel that it starts off a bit slow until after that first night. I'll chalk it up to the creature doesn't know that Jen's on the island yet, so I'll let it slide. I do think that when the other two show up, they immediately start to think that this could all be in her head and that she is losing it, which is ironic for what I think they're hinting about on the raft. The ending, though, was really good, and the climax of seeing Jen finally have enough strength in herself I thought was good, and it was done in a pretty believable way. And there's also another tense scene where the creature's on the island and there's an airplane going overhead. I like the tenseness of, do you give up your position to this creature to try to get saved, or do you, you know, hide to try to, you know, live to fight another day? As for the acting, this is a group of unknowns to me, but I didn't mind that in the slightest. Clemens, I thought, did really well as the lead. She wasn't great, but I also really believed her, and I have to give her credit. Most of this film is just her trying to survive on her own, so there's really nobody else to play off of, just what she's doing. And that's not the easiest thing to do, I would assume. Cohen, I thought, was good for his role. He did rub me the wrong way a bit, so I have to give him credit as a, for his performance. Lawrence is fine. And, and Benedict Samuel plays a character in the very beginning. Doesn't really have a whole lot, but I thought it was fine for what he did. Andrew Crawford portrays the creature of this movie. And I have to just have to give him credit as he has his physical size is so imposing that I think that definitely is a perk to the film. As for the effects, they were a bit hit or miss. The blood and the dead bodies we get look good. That all looked real enough to me, and I'll give it credit there. The creature is done with a combination of practical and CGI. The practical effects are really good. They strategically don't linger on it, and I love when a film does that because it allows our imagination to fill in what we think we see, and we don't get enough time to necessarily pick it apart. There's some decent CGI as well, but some of it I just wasn't a fan of, as you can just tell that it's not real. But the film is shot very well. And then the last thing I wanted to go over is the soundtrack. It didn't necessarily stand out to me until some of the more tense scenes. They actually decided to go with a synth sounding selections. And that really took me back to like Italian films of the 80s. So I usually enjoy those soundtracks. So I'll give it credit for that here. Now it's not necessarily a score I would revisit often, but it's one that worked for what they needed it to do. Now with that said, this film does some things that really terrify me. Being isolated on an island without knowing if you're going to be saved is terrifying. But then you have a creature that is stalking you. It's scary of what could be at the bottom of the ocean, so that helps for me. 
This is really a character study of Jen, and I think Clemens' performance was good. The others are solid in support of her. I think the pacing is fine, and most of the effects are pretty good. There's some CGI that I wasn't a fan of. Now, the soundtrack works for what was needed, and I would say overall, this is another above-average film that I would give a 7 out of 10 to. Okay, and then my last review for this week is going to be The Furies from 2019. This is written and directed by Tony D'Anquinino. It stars Arlie Dodds, Linda Gno, and Taylor Ferguson. This is an action horror thriller from Australia and the United Arab Emirates. This is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. The synopsis is, a woman is kidnapped and finds herself an unwilling participant in the deadly game where women are hunted by masked men. Now this is another film that I'd heard about through the horror community, including I believe there was an episode of Netflix and Chill that covered this. Now I only heard the opening to that episode as I know they do spoilers, so I wanted to check this out before I you know, had anything spoiled in that episode, so that's something I'm going to go back and check out now and would recommend you doing the same. I didn't know a whole lot outside of, you know, just the name and that people had been watching it, so it always helps me to come in blind so I can, you know, make my own determination about everything that I'm seeing. Now, there's not really a whole lot that I can add that wasn't in the synopsis because it's really our main character of Kayla is hanging out with her friend Maddie where they kind of get into a little bit of a tiff as Maddie kind of makes a comment that doesn't sit well with Kayla, but then she hears her friend scream, so she goes to see what's going on, and she ends up getting kidnapped, and the same thing happens to you know both women here, where they end up waking up in a box. Now, when they do wake up, we only see Kayla. We're not really sure if Maddie was brought here or not, and before Kayla also wakes up, she has a dream that she's in a weird like operating room where they're doing something and we see blood running down from her eyes but she's not really sure if this is real or just something that is you know in her head as like an hallucination now something that works in this movie's favor is that they don't over explain these things they introduce that kayla has epilepsy which plays into how we're able to learn more about what is going on here i don't necessarily know if it works like that having epilepsy but then again the technology they're using is a bit futuristic so i'm a lot i'm i give myself the leeway to suspend some disbelief now it's not too far out of the realm of possibility so that's good as well i will say though i don't like how this film ends i don't feel that this person would be able to be found as easy as it makes it seem um, but I mean, I'm not going to go too much into spoilers with what that is here, as it's just going to be a mini review, but I just thought it was a little bit too far-fetched. Now, this movie has an interesting use of Beauty and the Beast, which I thought was a good touch, and I'm assuming they are referring to, with the title, the mythological creature of the Furies. Now, this gets brought up in the film that our main character is tough like those goddesses are. I don't know if this is like an aboriginal or something to do with Australia that they're hinting at here, or if they're referring to the Greek creature of the furies i should have probably looked into this a little bit more but i did a quick search and couldn't find anything so that's just something that is interesting to me at least and i do like that since this takes place in australia they do use a section of the outback which makes it terrifying because of how expansive that is and how the weather there is very extreme where with hot and cold depending on you know the time I'm going to transition over here to talk about the pacing. I thought it moves at a good pace. We have a runtime of 82 minutes. 
It doesn't take long to establish the concept, and we get that early death in the cold open, and then we get hints at that there is kind of a game being played here, and that technology plays a part in it. We then, as I said, get to meet our lead as well as her friend. I like that we learn things naturally, and it does well in building the tension as they try to survive these mass killers. I was slightly disappointed though as I liked how they were building our lead, but then I feel it loses that. Now there's a character in this of Rose, who is played by Gano, or Nago, not really sure how to say that. Now she does something that is shocking, and I did like that, but I just feel it takes away from the main character a bit. And as I said, I wish it would have ended differently, and that does include like the final little sequence as well, which I didn't care for. As for the acting though? Dodds was really good as the lead. She thinks she's weak in the beginning, and we get hints of that early on into this, you know, quote-unquote game. And I know part of it is due to her medical condition of being epileptic. What I did like to see, though, is a change that comes over her as these horrific things are happening. That arc was good. Nago is interesting in this movie as I believe she says she was homeschooled. And I also think there might be hints that she might be on the spectrum of being autistic as well. So I thought that was an interesting thing to tie in. And that also explains some of the things about her character as well. Um, I thought Taylor Ferguson, who portrays Shino, was interesting, especially being kind of the counterpoint to Kayla. Jess, who is portrayed by Daniel Horvat, was good. Uh, Maddie, who is played by Ebony Vagulins. I also liked her for what she brings to this. Um, Alice, who is portrayed by Caitlin Boye. She has an interesting little section in this movie that I don't necessarily know why her character does what she does. I can assume that it's probably out of fear, but it did feel slightly out of place, if I'm going to be honest. And then we also have Sally, who is portrayed by Harriet Davies. I thought her little role was solid as well. And I will admit, she has a pretty brutal death scene. And I think the masks that we get in this movie are pretty sweet as well. Now, there's um, Steve Morris portrays one named Rotface and then another one named Pigface. And going back to the idea of Beauty and the Beast, every masked killer has a paired number with somebody else. And I like how they, you know, explain this aspect of it. There's also another creepy guy in a skin outfit. We're going by the name of Skin Crow, who is, who is played by Ben Toyer. And then another one that we have is Leon Strip, who portrays Babyface. And Ali is a kind of cool-looking one as well. And I think what also works for these killers is they just have an imposing body type, so that makes it creepy also. Something, though, I was really excited to talk about are the effects. They look like they went practical with pretty much everything, and if there was any CGI, I didn't notice it myself. We get a great death with an axe, along with a knife that goes through a hand to just kind of, you know, bring up a couple of them. They had me cringing and smiling ear to ear at the same time, as they were that brutal. And it's also shot just fine, in my opinion. The only issue would be some of the effects where the video feed is messing up. I normally don't like this, especially if it's found footage, but I'm willing to forgive it here as to why it's happening with Kayla. And now with that said, this film had some really good things going for it. I like the taking of the idea of something like the game Manhunt and incorporating it into you know the slasher film, which we do here. Um, there's some interesting references with Beauty and the Beast as well as some kind of mythology as well. I thought the characters were pretty solid and distinct enough. The mass of the killers look good, as are the slasher effects. They were done practical, which I love. The pacing is good for this film, but I don't like how it ends, and I feel like there was some missed opportunities. The soundtrack really didn't stand out to me, but it also didn't hurt the film. It fit for what was needed. So overall, I would say this is an above-average movie. 
with a few changes I think this could have been even better. I would highly recommend this though if you like slasher films. So my rating here is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Okay, and what I'm going to do now is send you over to the trailer for the first of my two featured reviews for I Trap the Devil. You watch TV? Listen to the news? Things are changing right before our eyes. I follow you here? What? Something feels wrong. There's something in the air. A presence. It has been around for as long as anybody can remember. What have you done? There is something evil locked behind that door. Please help me. Who else have you told about this? This is a nightmare. Back a dog into a corner. He's gonna bite. I don't know what he thinks I've done. But he's never gonna let me leave here. Faith makes people dangerous. You guys are not listening. I know this sounds crazy. I am not crazy. Okay, for my first feature review of this episode, I'm going to be covering I Trap the Devil. This comes from this year, 2019. It is written and directed by Josh Lobo. It stars Scott Poitras, A.J. Bowen, and Susan Burke. This is a drama horror mystery, and the country of origin is the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, a man descends into paranoia after trapping what he believes to be the devil in his basement. But things take a dark turn when his family unexpectedly arrive for Christmas. This was a film that I wanted to see earlier this year, but I couldn't catch it at the Gateway Film Center when it was showing. For whatever reason, the times they were showing it didn't match up with my work schedule, so it just didn't align for me. Now, I did get to see this as part of my year-end roundup in December, but it also doubled as a Christmas film, which was part of the reason why I decided to check this out. And I was also stoked to see that A.J. Bowen and Jocelyn Donahue are both in this film as well, as I'm a big fan of both of their works, and they're kind of forces in low-budget or like independent horror cinema that when I see that they're in something, I definitely move up to the top of my list as something that I try not to you know, miss out on. Now, to start this film out, we get a surreal scene of the police bursting into a house. If my memory serves, it is done in slow motion. The door looks like it has been nailed shut with boards. It then cuts as to what leads to what is happening. Matt and Karen, who are Bowen and Susan Burke, arrive at the house. It is snowy out, and there's an eerie feel as the windows seem to be covered and blacked out. We will soon figure out that it's actually newspaper that is covering them. Matt has to force his way in and finds that there's a bunch of junk blocking the door. And while Karen's outside having a cigarette, she finds an em some empty bullet casings in the snow. The house belongs to Steve, who is played by Poitras. 
it actually seems to be the old family home. He's just the one that is in possession of it now. The reason the couple came up is Steve is troubled. He hasn't been handling the death of his wife or his daughter very well as they died in a tragic accident. And from what I could tell, it was a pretty major one that was headlining in the newspapers. Now Steve tells them that they can't be there and we know there's something not quite right about all of this. He reveals what this uneasy feeling that we're getting is from is Steve has locked a man in the basement behind a door and there's a cross on it and what he's claiming is that this man is the devil. We hear his voice and it is that of Chris Sullivan pleading to be let out and that he just wants to get back to his family. Steve tries to convince Matt that what he's saying is real and shows in the attic room that he has there are a bunch of newspaper clippings and documents that are pasted to the ceiling and it almost looks like the Always Sunny in Philadelphia meme where there's yarn that is connecting them. And I'll get in a little bit more into spoilers what he's trying to get at here because I definitely think it's an interesting concept. The couple thinks that he's descending into madness due to the death, like I said, of his wife, who is Sarah, as well as just being isolated in this house by himself. The more that we learn, though, the more they start to think that he might be telling at least some truths. But Steve is tormented as well by an old television that shows jumbled in images of his wife as Sarah is portrayed by Jocelyn Donahue, as well as receiving disturbing phone calls. The real question is, who is the man in the basement, and is Steve going crazy, or is he telling the truth to his family? Now, this has a concept that I can really get down for, and is usually something that ticks a lot of my boxes. Steve thinks, as I've said, that the man in the basement is the devil that he's trapped. His brother and his brother's wife are concerned that the death of his wife and daughter, that he's just losing his mind due to being isolated here, as well as, and that he's just trying to cope with this in this way that's just not healthy. At first, it's exactly what we're presented with. There are little subtle things, though, that as this progresses, that we're really starting to make this couple, as well as myself, question of whether Steve is telling the truth or if he might, you know, be onto something here. The problem, though, that I had with this is that it's extremely slow. I personally do dig slow burns, but I think that it takes it a bit too far here, if I'm going to be honest. It is interesting, though, as the runtime is only 82 minutes, so it should feel like it should. It feels like it should fly by. The problem that I had, though, was that it just really drags for whatever reason. The story is interesting, but we just get a lot of people standing around talking. Steve seeing his deceased wife on the old television is a good move. There was this creepy feel to it, and I didn't know what we were getting there, and it's distorted, which also helps with that. But what I think they should have done here is allow us to hear what Steve is hearing over the phone, because we don't get that. We just get his facial expressions as he's listening, and I think that hearing, even not even necessarily the first time he gets one, but as things go on to hear what he you know, is hearing over the phone, would have made it build even more tension for me. And I also feel that there was a long stretch of not really anything happening, and so it just loses some of the tension that it should be building there. I will say, though, is I really dig the ending and the implications that come with it, and I will have a spoiler section as well, as I said earlier, that I'll kind of delve into that a little bit more. Now, before moving away from the story, there's an interesting concept that Steve brings up, that there are two types of evils in the world. There's just the evil of man, that isn't as bad, and then there's pure evil. He thinks he's found a connection from what happened to his family, that there's actually a person that spreads this. I think the film exploring this a little bit more might have helped as well, 
because that was something that when he brought it up sucked me in. We just don't get a whole lot of it after that point. I will say that the acting is really good. Poitras being introduced the way he is works. We are given that he's crazy and that he's isolated himself where this could be what is, you know, happening to him and being detrimental to his mental health. Movie then presents that maybe he's not and could be telling the truth. On the converse though, Bowen and Bert are a great couple. They're supposed to be almost like us in that they believe that he has a problem that they're there to try to help, but then they learn more about what he's doing and the more they have interactions with the man in the basement, the more they start to believe that it could be real. I thought Sullivan's voice as the man was great. It sounds quite creepy to be honest. I was stoked to see that, as I said, that Donahue was here because I absolutely love her. I wanted to be, I wanted more of her if I'm honest, but it doesn't make sense with her character. And I will say she does add some nightmare fuel to this film. Now there isn't really a whole lot in the rest of the cast, but I felt like what we did get definitely rounded this out for what was needed. As for the effects of this film, to be honest, there aren't a whole lot. We get some gunshots, and they were done practically. And to be honest, I thought they did a solid job of hiding them, which makes it even more effective. The blood that we get looked good. There's also this bright red light that they use quite a bit that has this eerie feel to it, which gave me flashes of you know old Mario Bava or even the original Suspiria with how harsh that light is. And they do use it quite a few times. And I also find it interesting because it is one of the scenes is in the basement. I think that this is a good move to make it you know, feel more eerie, and it's, very, it's shot very well also. Now with that said, this film really did catch my interest, but just didn't, didn't live up to what I wanted. That's not to say I didn't enjoy it. It is a slow burn that moves just a little bit too slow and needed just a bit more for me. I think there's some concepts that could have been fleshed out to make this even better. It is a really good character study of these three people with the man looming in the basement. Who is he? And is he the devil? I thought the acting really did bring this to life. The use of color was good, and the effects were solid. The soundtrack did really well in building tension during some scenes. And some of the things I can really remember is when the television is showing Sarah. We do get this kind of loud and creepy music that just made me feel uncomfortable. So I did think they used it strategically at times. I personally found this to be just above average. There are pieces to this, though, that could have made this much stronger. They just didn't go far enough for me, unfortunately. So my rating here is going to be a 7 out of 10. And I'm going to cut over to spoilers here. But I will have this, as I said, time-coded. So if you want to skip ahead to anything after this, I will also have that available. Now, some of the things I was kind of hinting at during the earlier section is this really becomes one of those films where is this man going crazy or is he not? This has been done quite a bit where I do love the idea of watching somebody descend into madness, but when you kind of mix it with Supernatural, it does sometimes not work for me. I do have to say, though, I love how this film ends and what they did with it at the end, and that's really one of the things that I just wish it was a little bit more exciting in the middle because I think it would have made it even more stronger at the end. But there's a point where Karen keeps going down in the basement, and at one point she takes off the cross from the door that is you know keeping the man inside of there as she's bound and determined to let him go but then once she does she starts to feel uncomfortable and he starts to talk to her and tell her things which in turn made me feel uncomfortable because i'm starting to wonder is this guy you know human or is he really that steve thinks he is as i said she does this a few different times and what i find interesting is he's able to influence these people in order to do things 
that will help him get out, but it also will hurt them, which I think is you know pretty interesting as well. But the point I wanted to get at here is that when she, when the person behind the door finally gets free, it's a little girl, and that was the moment where I was like, Jesus, this is the devil, or at least is a evil entity that has been in there, and he has been influencing all of these things. Or the images that Steve has seen on the television, you could just chalk up to him, you know, over grief and just losing his mind. And that's why I almost feel like, I understand they probably didn't let us hear the phone calls, because if you did, then we would know that it's actually you know, is something supernatural going on here. But I just find it interesting, though, that you would show the things on the television, which kind of gives something similar to there. But when this little girl comes skipping out of there and leaves the house and all the mayhem that is left behind, because, I mean, there's kind of a quite a few deaths that happen right there at the end of the movie that really kind of, you know, shocked me. So I definitely like that. And it also goes back to the thing I was hinting at earlier, where Steve believes that there is, you know, evil and this person does it because he's able to connect events that happen similarly close together where there's possibly this person that is going around and making them happen. I was like, this is kind of a cool concept to have here because, you know, what he says is that the, you know, evils of man is like you steal some money from work or something along those, which is it bad? Yes. Is it like an egregious thing? No. Because I, my memory serves, Steve's wife and daughter get killed in something to do with like a train accident. So it's this major disaster that happens and it almost is signaling the fact that like when a plane crashes or something like that, like a more natural disaster or a more like disaster that has a lot of deaths, that there is this like evil entity behind it. And I thought that was a really cool idea to, you know, kind of play on here is that there could be this evil person, you know, causing this. So that's something that I just feel like they could have done a little bit more of and done a little bit better because it is quite interesting. So now with that said, I don't really have anything else to cover on this film. I'm going to send you over to the trailer for my second feature review and get into that one. Can we not do this? I want to meet them. Come on. Nick. <laughs> So good to see you. Full house this year. Well, maybe this year we can have a proper family Christmas like we used to. This country used to be great till all them Johnny Ahmeds and Bobby Bongo Bongo started coming in. Mr. Milgram, that's not fair. You come in here with your two hey, aunts and your Don't shout at my girlfriend. Here's what we do. We'll get up really early before they do, and we'll just go home. Someone's locked us in. What do you want about? They're all the same. Who would lock us in? Hello! Could it be a reality show? Some sort of awful game?
Okay, and my second featured review for this episode is going to be Await Further Instructions. This came out in 2018. It is directed by Johnny Kevorkian, written by Gavin Williams. It stars Sam Gittens, Nirjan Naik, Abigail Crittenden. It is a horror mystery sci-fi, and the country of origin is the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, a family's Christmas takes a turn when they await to find themselves trapped inside and begin receiving mysterious instructions through the television. This was a film that I was intrigued to check out. When I caught part of the trailer at the Gateway Film Center, I don't believe they ultimately ever had gotten it to show, but it still caught my eye. And I know I heard a podcast briefly cover it, so it went on my list of films to check out for sure. As I was driving home from Christmas uh, this year, I heard a podcast bring it up that it takes place around the holiday, so I actually recommended it to my girlfriend and we watched it together that night. Now we established that the character is pretty early on, and for me it works. Uh, we have Nick, who is Gittens, and his girlfriend is Anji, who is Nayak. They arrive at his parents' place through some conversations a bit later on, including when they first pull up though where he is telling her that they don't have to do this. He doesn't communicate with his family all that often, and it's been some time since he's come home. What I gathered is, since these two are getting serious, she's pushing to bridge this broken relationship if they're gonna you know, have a future together, and he doesn't really wanna do that because he seems to know how his family is. They're greeted at the door by his mother, Beth, who is Crittenden, and she's elated to see them. They come in where we next get to meet Granddad, who is David Bradley. He's watching TV and is making some snide remarks, and immediately we see that he's racist and quite rude. He makes some comments towards Anji that don't really sit all that well, and it's established that he's a former police officer as well as was in the military. And we also get to see that he's quite hard on Nick's father, who is Tony, portrayed by Grant Masters. He ends up coming into the room next, and we learn he's an office manager, and he makes some snide comments uh, about stating that if you're gonna do something like this, you know, personal, you need to do it in writing and making the young couple not feel that welcome here. Anji interjects here, stating that it was her fault that this happened, and Beth also jumps in in their defense, and Tony isn't swayed on his stance, though. As we'll get to know, more and more as this goes on that he's quite bullheaded. Next to arrive is his favorite child and that is Kate portrayed by Holly Weston. Now she's currently very pregnant and I'm not sure if I missed this or not if she was married to the father who is Scott uh, portrayed by Chris Sadler but they arrive and as we get to learn he thinks he's a tough guy and he's kind of muscular but we'll get into that here in a little bit. The family tries to get along though, and it doesn't go that well, as Kate and Nick never seem to really get along, and she always is making the comment that he's not as clever as he thinks he is, and she makes some off-color racist comments that are tossed towards Anji, and just in general, and she really just comes off as very naive and doesn't really get some of the things she's saying, and it almost seems like, being that I'm from the United States, I hear people quite a bit and read quite a bit, like even on like Facebook, where they'll make these comments and not really understand completely everything that they're talking about. But moving on, this young couple decides though they're going to leave the next morning in response to kind of how they were treated at dinner the night before. 
Both make statements about how they're feeling a bit groggy, and when they go to open the door, it is covered what seems like uh, metal. They can't push their way through, and they find that all the windows are covered like this as well. Nick finds a hatchet and tries to make a hole to get them out, which brings Beth as well as Tony downstairs, and Tony's irate about the noise. He tries to take over as the leader and demands order. He feels that there was an attack on the country and that this is done by the government to protect them. And this is where the TV starts to provide a message to remain calm and await further instructions. He decides that they're going to you know, create some sort of resemblance to their normal way of going about their Christmas and you know, have dinner to create some normalcy, which is where the TV starts to give them commands to see how far that they can be pushed. Now, there's quite a bit to unravel here, and I dig some of what they're trying to do. The first thing is, since they're isolated, as humans what we try to do is to create normalcy. Tony, being the head of the household, now that his father is up in age, is trying to take command. He does get into it with his father quite a few times, as Granddad undermines him and doesn't feel that his son is strong enough. We learn more of the backstory here that Granddad has been making rude comments to his son and calling him a squelcher. And from what I also learn, or at least what I pick up on here, is Granddad is embarrassed that his son didn't take a profession that was similar to his. And so he's always tried to toughen him up. And those scars for Tony are unhealed. And he in turn is taking it out on his son, which is what drove him away and why they haven't been communicating. And, and we still see as well that Granddad does not re respect Tony, and he's trying to take control here, in part, I think, to try to gain back that respect that he's never gotten. Now, something I did find interesting here is that the TV, with the message that it has, it's really just old-school type on a black screen. Now, Tony assumes that it's the government that is sending these messages. I don't completely blame him, as he's doing what he thinks is right, and... If I'm in that situation with the stress level that they're at, I might do the same thing. But when that starts getting darker and darker and having them do horrible things, I'm shocked that he doesn't question it more. Especially because there's no like seal or anything like that to show you that it's coming from the government. I brought it to my girlfriend and she agreed with me is that when we have those emergency messages, there's usually something indicates that it's the government. Well, we don't get that here and it kind of bothers me a bit, but I do feel for him at least, is that he stuck his heels into the ground and doesn't want to admit that he's wrong so he won't back down. Going back to the dynamic of the family, there is of course the issue of racism, which being from America, I see it even more so since in the most recently with the last two presidents that we have. We see this more and more. I was listening to Duncan over at the podcast Under the Stairs and he gave me an interesting perspective since this does come from the UK of something that I don't really know a whole lot about, but it was an interesting way for to kind of think about this. Now, the family here in this film talks down to Anji due to her ethnic background. I'm not sure if she's supposed to be Indian or Pakistani, um, so I'm not really going to comment, but she is definitely from something of the Middle East or at least that area. But it's interesting, though, is that she's actually one of the smarter people here and is, an, is a doctor or at least is training to become one. Nick is also quite intelligent, which bothers his sister Kate, who isn't as smart, but she feels that Nick has always showed her up, so it's always something that she's been harboring, and as the tensions raise, she finally calls him out on it. Beth is undermined and pretty much ignored from her husband Tony, and I do feel that there's an issue of misogyny here, and that's probably something hand down from Granddad, and especially from that older era where this is something that 
was more widely accepted. But from there, I would say that this does pretty good job in building tension. It does come with some slight issues though as well. First off, I love that it doesn't waste time into getting into this. We establish the characters, their strained relationships, and that starts to build the tension of how awkward this family interaction is. But once they're locked in, I definitely feel that it you know ramps that up even more. Now, something that my girlfriend pointed out is as they're trying to sneak off and they realize they can't and that the windows are blacked out, they shift right to dinner when originally it was very early in the morning. I think part of this is not being able to see outside so you don't know how much time has elapsed, but it is slightly jarring, and I know this is something else that Duncan brought up, is I don't know how long these people are trapped in this house and how long it takes for them to break down, because the issue becomes one of the commands is to throw away all the food because it's contaminated, but the way how fast everything is breaking down, it would seem like this has been at least a few days, so how could they get on that long without you know eating or you know, drinking anything, I will say films do cut out things that aren't deemed necessary, but I think in a case like this, we would need something like that as a as the father gets rid of everything because of what the TV says. I personally love how, though, when society breaks down, and it can happen very quickly, and how you really get to reveal the true character of people once it does, and I will admit, I didn't love the reveal here or how it plays out in the end. I would have liked something a bit more grounded as the images on the television that flash a few different times creep me out. It just went into a cheesy direction that didn't work as well for me. And I mean we get to see how grand of a scale this actually is happening. And I feel the film took the easy answer. And I've heard a lot of people saying that this is like a longer episode of Black Mirror. I haven't seen those so because of not having that reference point. I'm okay with some of the things we're getting. I just, like I said, didn't like necessarily how things play out in the end. As for the acting, though, I thought it was good across the boards. Gittins and Nike are both solid as the you know lead counterparts to each other. He doesn't want them to meet his family as he's slightly embarrassed, and also in my eyes, he is better than them. Nike seems like someone who is used to being treated this way and knows how to handle it, except she does seem to get offended fairly quickly. She is quite respectful, and I mean, regardless, they're rude to her on top of that. But she does seem to get a little bit more offended than somebody in her place who knew that these people weren't that great, yet still pushed it. So I thought she might have, she probably should have had a little bit longer leash, and probably waited to really get, you know, offended when they're the ones starting to single her out when things really gonna start to hit the fan. Um, Cruttenden really seemed to be ignored by her husband, but has a good heart. I do like to see her stand up to him eventually. Bradley is a real jerk, but I have to say his performance is really good, and he made me laugh with how horrible of a human being he is. And I mean, if you know me, if you can get a reaction out of me as an actor, that is what I'm looking for. Masters was very similar, and I felt bad for him when some things get revealed from his past. He's a jerk, though, as well, so I mean, it is what it is. Even if these things happen to you, you probably shouldn't project them out to others because you don't like what's happening, so why would you do it to others? I do like that Weston and Sadler are both the negative versions of Nick and Angie. Kate isn't as smart as she thinks and feels slighted, and she just knows that it's deep down that's that way, but can't project that out. As I was saying earlier, Scott is what I consider having popcorn muscles. He does what he's told and thinks he's tough. But he's one of those bullies that if you stand up to him, he can falter underneath it. As for the effects, there's not a whole lot of them early on. 
Um, I love the isolation and contained feel of the movie. Being that they're trapped inside this house as tension rays gives it a claustrophobic feel. There's some CGI later on with what's trapping them in, and I could have done without that. For how simple what's being shown on the television is, I actually really dug that. We get some symbols that are really creepy. I feel they should have capitalized on this, and I wish they would have went a different direction with what they showed there. Um, kind of played that up a little bit, but I mean, it's fine with what they did. And I do think this is shot fine overall. There's not a lot that stuck out to me for the soundtrack, aside that there is an alarm going off when certain violations are happening. It's not a subtle sound, but it is definitely unnerving, and it's a constant thing once they're going off. That got my nerves going, as we know bad things are happening, and it just drives your attention knowing that this alarm's going off and there's nothing they can do to stop it. Or at least the people that hear it don't know what to do to stop it, while others are you know, doing things that are going against what the television is telling them. Now with that said, I feel like this film has some really good potential to it. I like the setup and the characters and how the movie feels. The tension is really driven by, along with some of the use with sound and just everything that is presented. I was disappointed by the ending though. I really wanted it to be something else or at least a little bit different take on it, but what we got really didn't have the impact that I wanted. I still thought this was effective up until that point with its social commentary. It really did something that many of us feel with our own families, I'm sure. And I feel this is the above average film that is really close to being good. Just a few tweaks, I feel like it could have gotten there for sure. So my rating here is going to be a 7 out of 10. Now just to get into a few spoilers here for this film. Um, while I was looking up some stuff here, it is during a scene later in the movie where the mother is pleading to the TV. She reveals that the family's name is Milgram, which I didn't realize this, is referring to a test of obedience to authority, which is a theme that is throughout this film. And they also reside on Stanford Street, which is a reference to the Stanford Prison Experiment, which studied similar themes of perceived power and authority. And I guess this basic premise is very reminiscent of Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense episode Child's Play, where a family awakes one morning to find all the doors and windows of their house is blocked by an unearthly metal barrier. And just getting some of that trivia out of the way, I kind of wanted to delve a little bit in here about the aspects of this movie that I would like you to kind of check the movie out before you get to this section of it. The sense of being revealed that this is aliens of some sort. Now, there's this slit that's in the doorway of their house, and we end up realizing that each one of these, like, what ends up looking like cords is similar to like fiber optics and they're being held together which creates this barrier so it's malleable because each specific thread can move on its own and it ends up becoming similar to like snakes where you have a bunch of these just you know attacking together I don't like this being though that I mean I predicted early on that it was going to be aliens and that's exactly what it is for me, I don't like to be able to guess something that easily and then it just to kind of go along with that, especially because I think there could have been an interesting twist that we could have done here, where on the television, we see these symbols um, when they unplug it the one time, where it definitely looks like Illuminati or like satanic type symbols. I think it would have been an interesting thing to have that there are people that are actually doing this and watching them. And it would end up being something with supernatural forces that were able to do some of the things that are going on here. Because for me, I do like the fact that 
much like the mist, how when you isolate people like this, they definitely tend to turn on humanity and look for answers, which we kind of get a little bit that here, where the father ends up believing that what is coming through the TV and doing all this is religious-based, as the TV is telling them that it is their new religion that they need to start following, but I don't know if they necessarily would capitalize on the fact that it's Christianity, because it also becomes the issue where, for whatever reason, everybody that seems to die is done at the hands of another human, as the entity can't do it themselves and I mean this is an interesting idea where it needs us to survive but if that's the case then why would you want any of these people to die as it just seems like the longer you isolate them and the longer that they do horrible things the more likely they're going to turn to your side and there's also this weird issue where the sister ends up dying of which is something that Duncan pointed out as well that she dies of sepsis way too quickly than um, how the infection would set in but because we don't know the time frame of all these things, they are at one point getting ready to do a, an emergency C-section to get her baby out, but then they wait way too long and the child is fine though once her stomach is pulled away and the entity wants that for whatever reason. I think if you're going to end up having these cord things take people over, I just don't know if that necessarily works out because when I saw it play out, I kind of just started rolling my eyes and... It just didn't work well for me. So as I've said, this film does have some good aspects. Not as good as I you know, thought or wanted it to be type thing. Um, what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is take us to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I want to thank you for listening to Journey with a Cinephile. Just to close out here for episode eight, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can find all of my written reviews as well as posts for any of these episodes at Reviews of the Dead, and that is at horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can find me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I am Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, I am David OSU. Instagram, David OSU87. Over at the Flick Chat app, you can join that at Journey with a Cinephile. And what I'm thinking about doing for my next episode, which will be the first of the new year, is I'm going to do all of the 2019 horror movie releases that I've watched for the, you know, for the previous year. And I'm going to go ahead and break down, as of right now I'm sitting at 97 watches, and I'm hoping to get up to 100 before the end of this year. So look forward to that. I will, you know, post that episode once everything is recorded and, you know, edited and whatnot. And that will be coming out the same time and day that I normally drop these on Mondays. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get out of here and let you all, you know, go do whatever you need to. I once again want to thank you for listening, and this is David Garrett Jr. signing off.